Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, and welcome to episode 63 of the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Renee White. Thank you, thank you so much for joining me today. As you will probably gather, we are embracing IVF months at the moment, and we are doing all different kind of flavours of it. We had Dr. Manuela Toledo, who was in last week's episode. In this week's episode, we've got Professor Hayden Homer, and later on, we have the wonderful Professor David Gardner talking to us about the science behind IVF. But before we kick off in this episode, I just wanted to let you know about a a little special that we've got going on here at Fill Your Cup. So for those new listeners, when I'm not in front of the microphone here at the Science of Motherhood, I am running our wonderful doula village here in Australia called Fill Your Cup. We have doulas in Hobart, Melbourne, Sydney and... Soon, Brisbane. So we're so excited to be going national with this wonderful, wonderful group of women who help and support newborn mothers, sleep-deprived and overwhelmed newborn mamas when they come home from the hospital or after their home birth. We are there as the Mary Poppins of mothers and we support them by making beautiful postpartum specific meals. We do the laundry. We hold Bubby while you go have a sleep or while you go have a shower or you want to go do some meditation, we hang out with your toddler so you can have one-on-one time with Bubby or vice versa. We can have Bubby in a carrier or something like that while you have some one-on-one time with your beautiful toddler. And it is World Doula Week here in March. And to celebrate that, we are giving our beautiful listeners a little discount. So at the moment, we have got $100 off our Fill My Cup days. We've got $270 off our first 40-day package, which encompasses six in-home postpartum sessions, as well as like a whole bunch of other things. And we've got $410 off our fourth trimester package, which involves 10 in-home postpartum sessions, all meals included, travel time, shopping. There is, we are not providing you with a shopping list of things to get to make the meals. There is a menu that gets sent to you every week. You get to pick some beautiful, beautiful, nourishing food. And I'm going to tell you some of the beautiful, nourishing food that we cook our mamas because that is essentially the core of our business here at Fill Your Cup. 
I am a biochemist by trade and so I absolutely know how to support mums in the thick of it. And we know from the research that good nutrition postpartum is not just about your physical recovery. We know that it's instrumental in your mental and emotional recovery as well. And so some of the meals that we cook are like slowed cooked pork, carnita, um, tacos with like a beautiful coriander and pineapple salsa. If you are one of those people who thinks coriander tastes like soap, don't worry, we can omit it. We do a great hunter chicken stew. Oh my goodness, that is number one on our menu, 100%. We do a pumpkin and black bean kind of stew with beautiful corn chips and avocado on the side, a beef chick chili con carne with corn dumplings. Of course, our signature dark chocolate and goji lactation cookies are on the menu. And if you want to get the mix, the dry mix yourselves, you can just pop over to our website, ifillyourcup.com, and we have got those cookie mix packets on sale till the end of March. Again, we are celebrating World Doula Week. And they are only $22.95 at the moment. So grab yourself a bag or three. They have extended shelf life because they are just a mix. They're not a pre-made cookie. So pop over to the website and enter in the code MOTHERLOAD. That's all one word, M-O-T-H-E-R-L-O-A-D. And you can get yourself a little sneaky 15% off some cookies until the end of the month. So, yes, that is the type of food that we cook our mamas. And we are very, very excited to do that each and every week to make sure that you are nourished because nobody has time to cook meals like that when you've got a newborn baby. Like, nobody. Okay. So, without further ado, I am going to introduce today's guest. Professor Hayden Homer, who, oh my goodness, wait till you hear this interview. It is on endometriosis and I feel like we've had other people on the podcast. The beautiful Dr. Stephanie Perotta has been on. She's looked at more the nutritionist side of endometriosis, but today Professor Homer, he is one of the experts and specialists when it comes to endo and fertility which is just amazing. So he's a specialist in obstetrics and gynecology as well as a fertility subspecialist. He also directs Queensland's first and only research laboratory dedicated to studying the fertility of eggs. Professor Homer has over 20 years of experience in infertility and gynecology. And of course, he's accredited by the Royal College in Australian and New Zealand. And also in the UK. So Hayden has got the unique distinction of also holding an advanced accreditation in fertility and reproductive surgery in both Australia, New Zealand, as well as the UK. He's got a PhD in fertility research from the UK and holds a professorship in reproductive medicine at UQ, which is University of Queensland, where he directs research aimed at developing innovative technologies for improving ageing egg quality. And you will hear that. We discuss that quite in detail in, in the podcast episode. 
I am so thrilled to have him on here. We had a big deep dive into what endo is, why is it affecting so many people, how does it affect fertility, and then we discussed two of his recent papers around delayed diagnosis of endometriosis and how that affects your fertility journey, and then also there's been some myths and misconceptions and urban myths and things like that around whether endometriosis affects IVF outcomes and how that all goes into play. So you'll hear about that in the conversation that we are about to have. So I hope you enjoy this. I know this is going to be so valuable, particularly for those who have endo and are thinking about conceiving, or maybe you are in the thick of it right now. You've got endo and you're on that journey. And perhaps there's something in this episode that sparks a bit of information or maybe another question that you might have to ask your own fertility specialist about how you can get a bit more personalized care around your diagnosis of of endo and your conception journey. So without further ado, here is Professor Hayden Homer. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Professor Hayden Homer. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Renee. And you are joining us from what should be sunny Queensland right now, <laughs> but I've heard it's a bit overcast. <laughs> it's been mostly sunny, but just today it's a bit overcast. Yeah. yeah. And so all the listeners would have heard from the introduction that you are a specialist in obstetrics and gynecology. And as I said, you are greeting us here from Queensland. You are one of the top fertility specialists in Queensland. Is that right? Well, um, I'm one of only four that are subspecialized in fertility. So most people who do fertility in Queensland are what's known as generalists with a fertility interest. But all I do is fertility. I don't do, I actually don't do obstetrics anymore. Okay, there we go. And so on today's podcast, people would have seen from the title that we are going to look at endometriosis, given it it's Endo Awareness Month in March, if people are listening to this in real time. And I guess it's association with fertility. So I thought, first off, Let's clear the air. What is endometriosis? And I wanted to ask a real a couple of questions around the symptoms and the prevalence because it seems to be, in particular in Australia, quite high prevalence of women experience endometriosis. And I don't know whether we know this, but why are the numbers so high? Well, first question is, what is endometriosis? Um to break, break it down really simply, it's the lining of the womb, which is called the endometrium. If that lining finds its way outside of the womb and deposits outside of the womb, that's called endometriosis. The typical place that you will find these deposits are in the pelvis. The pelvis is the little basin that houses the womb, the vagina, the bladder. So in that little space, uh, these deposits can sort of land and implant 
very often on the surface of the ovary, um, on a couple other ligaments in that area. Um, but when these implants sort of get seeded, they then behave like the lining in the womb, in that they will grow, they will break down and bleed, and pretty much cycle um, in sync with the lining in the womb. The only difference is that the lining in the womb, when it breaks down, that blood has a way out, which is mm -hmm. through the vagina. The blood on the other deposits in the pelvis, which is the endometriosis deposits, they obviously have nowhere to go. So they accumulate on those little sites. And that blood can trigger quite an inflammatory reaction. It can then lead to scarring, which means one organ gets stuck to another. So typically, for example, the ovary might get stuck to the side wall of the pelvis. And you can imagine all of this going on in the pelvis can trigger quite a lot of pain. Mm. It can also distort the relationship of key structures required for pregnancy. And those key structures are the tubes and the ovaries. So if you imagine an ovary getting stuck in an awkward position, the tube then can't easily access the ovarian surface to pick up an egg that's released at ovulation. So that is, you know, quite simply what endometriosis is mm -hmm. and why it's linked to pain but also why it's linked to fertility problems. <clears throat> right. And so I, I think the statistic that I read quite recently was that it affects one in nine women in Australia. Is that like similar to global data? Part of the problem with the diagnosis of endometriosis has to do with being able to see these deposits. Mm. If the deposits are quite small, the only way you can see it is by doing an operation called a laparoscopy to actually visualize the pelvis and the surface of the organs. Now that, as you can imagine, is quite an invasive procedure to have done. Yeah. And not all women will have that, obviously. Mm. Um, so when we talk about prevalence, we are estimating what it's going to be, because in the absence of a definitive look in the pelvis, I can't tell you mm. out of 100 women how many have it. But when we look at data from women who have had laparoscopies and big hospitals and so on, the general prevalence of the prevalence in the general population is around about 10%. So that one in nine figure is correct. When you look at women with infertility, however, have difficulty conceiving, that prevalence is much higher. It's more like 40 to 50 percent. Okay. okay. And our recent uh, uh, study on an Australian population of women who had fertility problems suggests it's in the region of about 35 percent or so. So that is correct. You know, in mm -hmm. other words, it's much higher. Uh, in women have a fertility problem. I have to ask though, because I've heard, I've never experienced endometriosis. And again, coming back to your point, I don't know if I have it or not. And I think that's a really 
I think, strange phenomenon in that, and correct me, fact check me on this, Hayden, but my understanding is that you could have a like low degree of endo or, or even a high degree of endo and they're not indicative of or one-to-one in terms of relationships of pain and symptoms. So, you know, if you have lots of endometriosis, some people don't even have symptoms. How does that how does that happen? <laughs> I'm so perplexed by that. Yeah, so that's a conundrum and that's absolutely right that the degree of endometriosis does not correlate very well all of the time anyway with the degree of symptomatology. So the severity of the pain is not always reflective of how severe the disease is. It very often is, don't get me wrong. Okay. But quite often you will, we will see patients come to us for fertility problems. And once we start investigating, we then realize actually, oh, you have quite severe endometriosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it comes to light secondarily, not because they present with pain and they may never have had significant pain. Different people have different pain thresholds. It depends on where the endometriosis is deposited. We think that some types of deposits located close to the pathways will trigger a lot more pain than others. And um, the type of endometriosis, whether it's deep and infiltrating versus just superficial will also affect symptomatology. So there's a host of things that conspire to result in what your overall perception of symptoms are. Mm-hmm. And I like kind of going back to those stats, you know, 10% or even up to, were you saying like around 30%? Do we know why this happens? Like why do people get endometriosis? Is it lifestyle is it diet is it a combination genetics it's all of those things all of the above okay i pick d all of the above (laughs) there is a strong genetic link and there's an oxford group in in the uk there is an endometriosis center who have looked at the, the genetics of endometriosis and they're certainly it's multifact multigenic it's not single gene disease it's like many of these complex disorders, it's a combination of multiple genes that, again, um, you know, all the stars align. Or yeah, you need the perfect storm. Correct. And you end okay. up with endometriosis. So women with endometriosis often have a family history of endometriosis. Not always, but often they do. So there is this genetic link. So on, on the background of a... Actually, as as I mentioned, that in Queensland, we have a huge genetic um, research group, endometriosis genetic, using genome-wide association studies, GWAS, to study endometriosis genetics. So actually, we we at Queensland, uh, University of Queensland, with Professor Grant Montgomery, is one of the world leaders at studying endometriosis genetics. <clears throat> and they have certainly identified, you know, like I say, key gene pathways linked to endometriosis. So on the background of that sort of genetic predisposition, how endometriosis actually comes about, the question we're asking is, 
how do those deposits find their way into the pelvis? Mm. There's pretty much a couple major theories. The, the leading one is perhaps reflux, and that is that the lining, instead of being shed out through the vagina, actually refluxes through the tube and into the pelvis. So the tube is a conduit from the uterine cavity to the pelvic cavity. And if blood goes in that direction, then you can get deposits um, happening in that way. The other way is blood-borne spread from the lining. <clears throat> and that's how some women can have endometriosis in the lung, for example. Oh, okay. So there are very rare instances where deposits show up in the lung and then patients have blood collecting in the <coughs> lung cavity. Wow. Uh, and the third theory has to do with metaplasia. Metaplasia is the, is the conversion of one mature cell type into another cell type. So the lining of the pelvic cavity is called peritoneum. And those cells, I believe, are called mesothelial cells. And if they undergo metaplasia to endometrial cells, then those endometrial cells will behave and respond to circulating hormones, grow, and then bleed. And there you go, endometriosis. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot at play here. And I guess my understanding is that we're still discovering all of this and how it all works and, like, with the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Can we say that? <laughs> it is correct. We are discovering, you know, what are the origins? Can we identify people who are at risk? So, basically, what are we, one of the directions we're moving into is to try to diagnose endometriosis mm -hmm. using sort of like a scoring system, you know, where we have multiple factors and you get a score for each one and then that determines whether you're likely to have it or not. So increasingly we're trying to diagnose endometriosis with much higher resolution ultrasound scanning um, combined with possibly a genetic background, which together can put your risk of having endometriosis as quite high. And then those women may then elect to have a laparoscopy, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. That is one of the most comprehensive answers I've got thus far because I, <laughs> it runs in my family. It's in our history. So my sister's had it, my mum's had it, my auntie's had it, and I'm like, am I sitting duck? Do I have it? And I just don't know about it. You know, I've had one baby and I didn't have to do any ART. So... Mm. Maybe not, but that that was great. Thank you so much for <laughs> for informing me one, about that. One thing I would say, though, is if you have no problems with fertility and no significant pain, you don't need to go looking for it. You know, so if you don't right. have a problem with it, then don't go looking for it. You know? Yeah, because we're always going to find something wrong with ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> if you're enough, we sure will. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it's not like cancer. You know, it's not something you have to treat. It's benign. But look, it can be very damaging for some women. You know, quality of life, pelvic structure, fertility, quite damaging. Okay? But for yeah. those who have endo and it's not causing them a problem, you're probably better off just leaving it alone. Leave it alone. Yeah. 
Great advice. I love that. Um, okay, so let's start talking about that connection between endo and fertility. And you've touched on that already in, in the sense that you've described in terms of the physiology around the endometriosis, creating that scar tissue around the ovaries perhaps. And then, you know, um, we've got some issues with obviously the egg being able to be released or sperm meeting the egg. Can you describe to us, I guess, some of the fundamentals around that connection and what do you what do you see with your patients that are kind of the top three issues that that kind of are going on with endo well if you look at what it takes to get pregnant naturally and this is naturally so means in the body it's three main components you need to be releasing an egg and sperm needs to get to that egg so for the sperm to get to the egg you need a functioning fallopian tube and most women will have two fallopian tubes. When the sperm travels out to the egg, it has to traverse the entire length of the tube and the distance sperm has to swim from the vagina to the egg is about 4,000 times the length of sperm. So anything that's gonna compromise that journey for sperm is gonna compromise fertility. Second thing you need is that the sperm, when it gets to the egg, needs to be able to fertilize. But this means that the tube needs to pick the egg up. After fertilization, the embryo is then transported back to once the for about a week. And at this time, the embryo is in the tube going through gears of replication. So the embryo will go from a single fertilized egg cell a blastocyst which has almost 300 cells at the space of one week whilst it is moving down the fallopian tube. Endometriosis can affect all of those steps I mentioned. So okay. if you have deposits in the pelvis, it can all of the bleeding in the pelvis and so on, like I said, generates an inflammatory response. That inflammatory reaction that in, in the pelvis in that confined space can affect how sperm swims, can affect how it fertilizes the egg, and importantly, can affect the embryo for that key first week of pre-implantation development that's so crucial to generate uh, pregnancy, um, uh, that early pregnancy embryo. So endometriosis can affect all of that. At the more severe end of the spectrum, once scarring sets in, it can block a fallopian tube. It can consume an ovary to the point that there's very little normal tissue left to release an egg. So also there's two main things when it comes to getting pregnant in the body that endometriosis affects. One is structurally, how the egg ovary can release an egg, how the tube can pick up an egg, and how the tube can transport an embryo. And then, um, Secondly, it's that whole inflammatory milieu that can be counterproductive to the whole process. Mm. Yeah, because I can imagine with all of that inflammation, you've got lots of kind of chemical reactions. Let's just call them that. So I'm imagining like lots of cytokines and chemokines and immune cells around there trying to work out what's what's happening. That is not a conducive environment to something as precious as, as an embryo. So that's obviously not great. I wonder, so 
Just on a quick question. So if, say, an egg was to be, you know, fertilised by the sperm and there was that kind of, you know, I guess immunological storm, would is there what happens? Can the embryo just die? Is that yeah, so normally the consequence? So almost we, we don't know for sure because we can't track that one. Right. The body, but what we what we imagine can happen is that fertilization can be affected, so you don't even create an embryo at all. Right. But the embryo, based on what we see in the IVF lab, for example, we know that embryos are very vulnerable to anything in the early phase of development. That's because their cells are dividing so quickly. So it's almost like a cancer. When it's dividing that fast, the, the demand for nutrients and the most ideal environment is critical. So if you disrupt any of those things, it's going to put the embryo off its program and that's going to derail pregnancy. Right, right. Okay, then. So let's look at some of your papers because you've discovered a few things. The first one I wanted to chat to you about was the delayed diagnosis paper, which is from 2021. Can you walk us through that? So it was a retrospective kind of population study. What did you find in in that particular study? So what's particularly attractive about that study from the Australian perspective is that that's an Australian population. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's real life. It's people, um, you know, wide cross-section and it's longitudinal. So it yeah. covers a span of time. Most studies focus on a very narrow group based often in a single unit that meet very specific criteria. Mm-hmm. And those often form part of randomized controlled trials where you're trying to decide whether one treatment works for one group rather than another group. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with those types of randomized controlled trials is that they're so narrow, you're never quite sure how broadly they apply to the rest of the population. Right. So, so the study that we did, which is cross-sectional across the, the real-life Australian population is quite informative from that point of view because it's not being manipulated by, you know, selection criteria or exclusion criteria. This is it at play in real life. Mm-hmm. One of the downsides, however, is was the diagnosis of endometriosis. We couldn't be absolutely certain because, for example, one way we identified women in the study group who had endometriosis is if they've had surgery endometriosis so right. one way it's there's a coding system in medicare where they will code whether they operated on endometriosis so we could pick out those codes and know okay this patient had surgery for endo so must have had endo so that's a slight detractor but the real strength is it's australian it's cross-sectional and it's longitudinal and what that study basically found was that it looked particularly at two types of treatment. These are treatments that are, again, coded in Medicare, so we could identify them. One is intrauterine insemination, where sperm is put into the womb and timed with ovulation. In that scenario, that's like getting pregnant naturally, except supercharged. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
So you're still exposed to the endometriosis environment, that is the embryo, sperm, etc. And we compared patients who had that treatment to those who had IVF. IVF involves taking eggs out of the body and fertilizing them with sperm in the lab. So the embryo then grows outside of an endometriosis environment. Okay, And what we found was that women with endometriosis who did IUI had really poor success rates. And those that did IVF had much better success rates. And in fact, their success rates were no different from women who did not have endometriosis. Ah, yes. In other words, two points. IUI is not your ideal treatment with endometriosis. And two, IVF can completely counter endometriosis um, and provide success rates pretty much indistinguishable from those women without endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And we think that's because the eggs and sperm and embryos are being sort of nurtured in an environment that's endometriosis-free. Right. IUI, of course, you're still exposed to the environment, so it doesn't work very well. So would your, I guess, if, so would your recommendation then be if if a patient came to you and they they knew that they had endo and let's say that they hadn't started trying to conceive naturally what would your recommendations be would you would you kind of fast track to IVF straight up or would you say look give it a whirl for you know 3 to 6 months and then come back to me and we can talk about IVF just thinking about like listeners out there who are thinking about trying to conceive, they know they've got endo. At what point do you go, okay, you know, maybe you should start thinking about IVF? The determining factor above all else is female age. So if you're 31 or 30, time is on your side. Mm-hmm. So the one thing you can never get back is egg quality. So whenever you Whenever I see a patient, I'm looking for those factors that I will never get back. So I'm looking for your window of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So ultimately what gets you pregnant is a good embryo and that over 90% is determined by a good egg. doesn't matter if you have endometriosis or not. If you don't produce a good embryo, you won't get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you're young, you haven't started trying yet, you know you have endometriosis and there's no symptoms that require the endometriosis to be treated or whatever, no harm in trying for, say, six months, okay? Uh, You don't need to be fast-tracked straight to IVF. However, if it's not working out or not working out easily, your options are then, well, do I pursue a route that facilitates getting pregnant naturally or do I pursue a route that will counteract the endometriosis and get me pregnant efficiently. So if you're keen to get pregnant naturally and time is on your side, laparoscopy to treat endometriosis can improve your chances of conceiving naturally. Mm. The improvement is still quite marginal. It's statistically significant, but might be marginal. So it's not like you're going to go from 5% to 60%. Okay. Right. So studies that show statistical significance 
that significance is very often not biologically significant, meaning doesn't mean a whole lot to the patient. Mm. You know? So if five out of 100 people are getting pregnant and now we get seven out of 100 getting pregnant, that's statistically significant, but almost a very little meaning to patients. <clears throat> yeah. So there's laparoscopic surgery for those who want to pursue pregnancy. That's going to happen in the body. But whenever you do laparoscopic surgery, you then need at least six months of trying post-surgery to see if it's worked. Mm -hmm. so you can see what's happening. Time is ticking away. Yeah. And that's okay when you're young. Once you go past 35, equality is declining twice as fast as when you were 30. Mm -hmm. So your window of opportunity is narrowing much more quickly. So if I saw someone who is 37 or 38, my advice is very different from someone who's 20. Mm -hmm. So age is going to guide how you approach these scenarios. The other thing that's going to guide it, of course, is cost because laparoscopic surgery costs something. IVF costs something. One might be more than the next and that sort of thing. Yeah. But when you look at a pure, from a purist point of view, undoubtedly female age is your linchpin of how you manage these cases, okay? Mm -hmm. The other thing to bear in mind is what is your family strategy as a couple? In other words, how many children do you want? So two children is very different from one in terms yes. of planning. So if you're 35 and you came to me and you said you want only one, that's very different from if you're 36 and you want three, okay? The reason I mention numbers like that is that IVF enables you to strategize better. Mm -hmm. So if you get surplus eggs and embryos, you can freeze them. So if you got pregnant now, although it will be two years before you come back for baby number two, you know you have a bit of a security in having embryos frozen that you can use because those embryos won't age. Whilst your yeah. eggs will, those embryos won't. So there are a number of parameters you use to strategize for a particular couple. What's going to work best for you? I appreciate that. That's, yeah, great. Great information. Because I know there would be a lot of people at different stages of their, you know, conception journey, and they're all very useful things to think about. Okay, so we've spoken about, like, that delayed diagnosis and, and the fact that, you know, when women have endo and they choose the IVF route, it's we're creating that superficial environment and, and it's not like they have endo at all. The other paper that I wanted to discuss was the effects of um, endometriosis on IVF outcomes because, you know, we've spoken about the effects of fertility and then people, you know, there may be a myth out there that, it's all doom and gloom, that IVF's not going to work for them either. Can you walk us through that study and, and what you and the team resolved at the end of that? Um, just coming back to the previous paper, so the issue yep. with delayed diagnosis of, IV, of endometriosis was that we found that women who weren't diagnosed with endometriosis early often did more IUI. Okay. And that those who were diagnosed with endo early went to IVF quicker. That second group got pregnant quicker. 
the mm. group that were diagnosed late, we feel lost some time doing a treatment that was not going to be very efficient. That's what the results seem to suggest. Mm. So in other words, in an ideal world, if you do have endometriosis, you diagnose it early and move on. And if you do need assisted reproduction, you prioritize IVF over IUI. Because if you go through rounds and rounds of IUI, of course you're getting older as time goes on, and that's going to compromise IVF success rates. So that's the, the, the point about the delayed diagnosis in, in terms of um, getting your treatment choice right, if you like. Yeah. Now, in terms of the second paper, the second paper was specifically about endometriosis effects on IVF success. And there are quite a few myths out there, or not myths, but there's quite a few Urban legends. <laughs> and there's quite a bit of truth behind all of these things. But uh, when you look at success in IVF, you're looking at two major components. How good is the embryo and how receptive is the womb to this embryo? So two pretty, you know, to boil it down, there's these two parameters. If you look at studies that transfer known normal embryos because they're chromosomally tested, Success rate is by and large down to a good embryo. Over 90% of success is about making a good embryo. Okay? Now, issues with endometriosis and IVF is that there's some there's some thoughts, some schools of thought out there that endometriosis can affect embryo quality by affecting egg quality. All right? And the second one is that can affect the endometrial receptivity. So in other words, two of the sort of things that have been going around are those two potential effects of endometriosis. And recently, these have been addressed quite directly uh, with studies that transfer embryos that are known to be chromosomally normal. So an embryo that the biggest problem an embryo would have is a chromosome imbalance. Okay? So we know that as women get older, a consequence of the poor inequality is that embryos have increasingly high rates of chromosome problems. However, if we can find a normal embryo chromosomally normal, in older patients, their success rate is as good as young women. So it's about finding the chromosomally normal ones. So there have been a number of studies that have looked at chromosomally normal embryos in an endometriosis population. So the first one of the studies looked at does endometriosis affect equality? If it did, women who have endometriosis should have a much higher rate of chromosomally abnormal embryos than women of the same age without endometriosis. And that study was done and the answer is there's no difference. Mm -hmm. So women with endometriosis don't appear to have an increased risk of poor egg quality. Uh, egg quality ultimately, the biggest threat to egg quality is still aging. So age remains the most important determinant of equality. What endometriosis can affect, however, especially if it involves the ovaries with endometriotic cysts, 
which are known as chompensis <clears throat> or endometriomas, is that they can re reduce egg number right. by occupying the ovary. The amount of normal tissue you then have access to to grow eggs in IVF is reduced. So we know that women with endometriomas, which is the endometriosis in the ovary, they produce less eggs than women without endometriosis. So they have lower egg numbers. However, the quality of those eggs are no different. Okay. okay. So that's one aspect that I dealt with in that paper was, is there any robust proof that endometriosis per se reduces egg quality? And the answer is no. The second aspect was whether endometriosis can affect implantation. And uh, this one is a bit less clear, but again, you can only evaluate implantation, which is the receptivity of the lining. If you know in your study groups that the embryos are equivalent, mm -hmm. and the only way you can know that, or the best way I should say right now, is to know that you're transferring chromosomally normal embryos. So one study transferred embryos that had been tested for chromosome makeup using pre-implantation genetic testing, which is known as PGTA. So they tested the embryos in women with endometriosis and women without it. The aneuploidy rate, which is chromosome abnormality rate, was the same, which is what I spoke about, that the egg quality is not altered. And they transferred those known normal embryos to women with endometriosis and compared them to the results when they transferred known normal embryos to women without endometriosis. So in this way, you can specifically test how the, the lining of the in an endometriosis patient receives an embryo compared to the lining from a woman without endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And basically, the implantation rates, the pregnancy rates, the live birth rates were identical. Okay. Okay. One caveat here, however, was that that study involved the transfer of embryos that were frozen and thawed. And they were transferred in cycles that were medicated, meaning that patients didn't ovulate on their own. Lining preparation was done purely with the use of hormones. And it's thought that maybe in that type of cycle, the endometriotic effect from the pelvis is suppressed a lot more than if you ran a natural cycle to prepare to thaw the embryo. That study hasn't been done. That hasn't really been tested. But that remains a possibility that endometriosis could potentially affect an embryo transferred in a fresh IVF cycle, that is without right. freeze and thaw. Yeah, that, that's really interesting that you touched on that because that was one of my kind of follow-up questions that I had. Um, the first one was, if a woman has endometriosis and she's going through the journey of IVF and, you know, there's, I guess, um, stimulation with hormones and, and, and things like that, do do women who have endo see symptoms or like different symptoms to what someone who doesn't have endo at all? I think 
it's a good question. And basically, it pertains to whether the stimulation we use for IVF can flare up endometriosis. Yeah. Women with endometriosis are, by and large, much more sensitive to when we grow follicles, we, those follicles produce estrogen. And if you imagine in one natural cycle, you produce only one follicle, which might produce an estrogen of around a thousand picobols per liter or so. Imagine if you've now had 20 follicles growing, so 20 times that estrogen load. Estrogen stimulates endometriosis to grow. So it can certainly cause a temporary flare-up of the endometriosis and the symptoms and cause a bit more discomfort for some patients. It can make recovery after they become a bit more dicey, you know, needing more analgesia and so on. But yes, that has been a concern that repeated rounds of IVF, which women with endo often require, can longer term affect disease progression. Mm. Okay, and so my follow-up, my question to that is, is it, like, if someone had really bad endo and you kind of thought, okay, this is going to this is going to be troublesome, and also, like, from a structural as well as kind of immune function, it, are there instances where prior to starting IVF you perhaps recommend having a laparoscopy and clearing the endometriosis first so is that it, ever an option it is and it's a very good question again very controversial okay <laughs> uh, again by and large it depends on who you talk to okay so for example if i do a lot of laparoscopic surgery you can guess what my answer will be what yes, we need to do laparoscopy from my point of view and i think from the point of view of a, increasingly a lot of fertility specialists who, whose primary focus is fertility rather than laparoscopic surgery. And there is quite a bit of overlap, I, I, I give you. But the increase, increasingly, we're doing less surgery. The mm -hmm. reason is surgery, especially the, the, the group of patients you are often considering surgery for those with endometriomas, which is cysts in the ovary. The problem with that is when you go after the cyst, inevitably you're going to lose normal ovarian tissue. Right. So these women already often have a low reserve, ovarian reserve. So if I then go and, you know, inadvertently, never intentionally, mm. lose even more ovarian tissue, then this drops your reserve further. You're never going to get those eggs back. Right. So you're always looking at preservation of ovarian function as a priority when you're doing IVF. If you've completed your family, yeah. go after the endometriosis. That's not a big deal because if we lose ovarian tissue, I can replace estrogen very easily. What mm. I can't replace is eggs. Yeah. Okay. So if there is endometriosis, and I have access to normal ovarian tissue, we'll be doing IVF because we know we're culturing everything in the lab and the data doesn't suggest any major impact on IVF success rates. 
maybe newer data coming through. So no, I would not say it is a necessity to do laparoscopy for endometriosis with the express intention of improving your IVF success. The evidence that that's the case is not good. Mm. However, if your ovaries are caught up in a position where we can't access it for egg pickup, that's the yes. We now need to do what we can to facilitate IVF. Mm -hmm. And that could mean mobilizing the ovary. It could mean treating endometriosis, but being very conservative, avoiding to any damage to the ovary, because that is really your focus. That is your, you know, that is your priority, the ovary. Mm -hmm. Can you do, so say, I just keep thinking about all these questions. <laughs> When when you're doing the laparoscopy and say you're mobilizing the ovary, can you do the egg retrieval at the same time? Is that a possibility? No, because your ovaries have to be stimulated first for 10 days. Right. Okay. So you need to do the laparoscopy at the same time that egg pickup is due. Mm hmm so that is possible, but it becomes a lot trickier because a stimulated ovary is very, very, very fragile. It's going to bleed very easily. Gotcha. So okay. you don't want to be moving those big, you know, ovaries <laughs> No bueno, no bueno. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's fascinating. All right, then. All right, so we've touched on those two papers. I think... We do do a rapid fire at the end. It's only four questions, so don't panic. I'm not like Eddie McGuire and going to ask you <laughs> crazy stuff. But I just wanted to get any any final thoughts around, you know, personalised treatments of endo in relation to fertility. Is that the direction we're kind of going in now? Like I, I kind of think that that's the direction we're going with most kind of medical indications. Is that the case as well for endo and IVF? I think with endometriosis, the, one of the key changes that come will be non-invasive diagnosis. So okay. endometriosis will potentially come under, you know, a sort of genetic screening panel. You know, we're increasingly doing these preconception genetic carrier screens. You can yes. imagine down the track that there is an endometriosis panel that you might do that might identify risk mm. very early on, you know, even before you embark on your pregnancy journey. And then that might color how you approach it in terms of timing, whether you do an embryo freeze, whatever, whether you do a laparoscopy. So I can see that endometriosis will probably become part of a screening panel that we might do. Um, I think that would be great. <laughs> it will give you, it gives you just a bit more information so that you can project what your risk might be. Yeah. Because like I say, once egg quality goes down and egg number dissipates, there's no bringing it back, at least not yet. Yeah. I think I've got in my notes here that I, there was there was a paper was it earlier in the year it was a researchers from California and they were doing it was in Nature Genetics <laughs> looking at the personalized diagnostics and treatments of endometriosis and they were doing the single cell measurements mm. 
which I thought was fascinating. But yes, every it's I think I think you're right. We're all heading towards that. What's your molecular signature for yeah. X kind of disease state, and what's your score out of ten yeah. in terms of probability? Correct. So I can see where we will have a genetic component, but then an imaging modality, and then we combine them. So right now we do a similar thing quite broadly with ovarian cancer screening, for example. Mm. I don't know that there's any evidence that it works, but the concept is the same, that you use some biochemical or genetic marker and combine that with an imaging modality and age and a number of other things. And the more parameters you get together, the more sensitive your 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 diagnosis, your estimate might be. Mm. Well, here's hoping because it obviously affects so many individuals. And as you've shown from your research studies, the earlier we can diagnose, the better, and then we can come up with better treatment plans and conception plans and family plans. Yes. So that's amazing. We're going to wrap up with our rapid fire, Hayden. First question is, what is your top tip for people who have endometriosis who are hoping to conceive? I would probably, you know, look at evaluating what is your fertility status. Even if you haven't started trying, only because if there is a problem, you want to know early. So, for example, you might identify completely unexpectedly a sperm problem, in which case that leads you to treatment in any case without having to wait you know, any length of time trying. But because if you do have endometriosis, the likelihood that you'll end up with treatment is higher. And mm-hmm. so you want to sort of work out all the factors contributing to your fertility. Because if there is an independent one that needs treatment, along with the endometriosis, you know, that's the direction you're heading. Yeah, great information. Do you have a go-to resource, whether it be a book or a workshop or, or something like that, where people can learn more about endo and fertility? Oh, well, my resources tend to be PubMed and published papers. But look, there are a lot of endometriosis support groups. And I think if you Google endometriosis, you'll get quite a lot of information. I would stress, though, that endometriosis for fertility is very different from endometriosis on a broader scale. Mm -hmm. I I still think for most women, the challenge with endometriosis is the symptomatology of pain. Yes. And that the fertility group, whilst they are substantial, they are a smaller group. Mm -hmm. And how you treat that group is very different from how you go after pain. The managements are very different. Managing, Managing pain is often quite aggressive. It's going after all the endometriosis, regardless of where it is. Fertility, very different. Like I said, your priority is to preserve the Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And our last question is, and it's very left of centre, we um, borrowed this one from Brene Brene Brown. What do you keep on your bedside table? (laughs) (laughs) What do I keep? Um, the remote for the television. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you relax at the end of the day? Watch a bit yeah. of TV? Yeah, that's that's the that's the routine. That's the wind up. Yeah. 
Okay, fair enough. Love it. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been so informative and you've answered perfectly all my curveballs, I think, as I was thinking of questions as you were talking. I was like, hold on a minute. What about this? What about this? What about this? Oh, but so your, questions, me- your questions were very good. They were the exact sort of question that's, you know, really probing the space correctly. Yeah, very Oh, good. I'm so glad. I like to, I um, interviewed Manuela Toledo, who's down here in Tassie. She actually, her episode part one released this week. And she did say to me, she's like, you've got really good questions. You've asked me things that people don't normally ask me, but you're right on track with what's going on. So I'm so glad I can bring all the good stuff to, <laughs> to the podcast, which is really great. If anyone wants any further information about yourself and your practice, where can they find you, Hayden? Um, I can give them my website. Yes, perfect. It's www.drhayden.com.au. Perfect. So www.drhaydenhomer.com.au. Amazing. We will put that in the show notes for all the listeners if they want to um, link that directly. But again, thank you so much for your time. This has been so informative. And I know that so many listeners, every time we talk about endo on the podcast, we get lots of people kind of writing in saying, you know, thanks for giving airspace to this. But also, as we've touched on, we're at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the research around this particular area. And so it's lovely to hear that further studies are being conducted and, you know, funding is going to women's health research as well, which is something that I have a big gripe about. <laughs> yeah, well, the Queensland state government recently awarded quite a big chunk of money, $2 million or something, to endometriosis research. So, yeah. Good on them. It's about time. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much for your time again. And yeah, have a great week. Thanks, Renee. Good to talk to you. See you later. Cheers. Bye. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.